now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. To kick off the new decade, Just Science will be meeting with leaders in the field to discuss the current state of the criminal justice system and the advancements they anticipate in the coming years. In episode one of Improving the System Season, Just Science interviews Dr. Jonathan McGrath, Senior Policy Analyst in the Office of Investigative and Forensic Sciences at the National Institute of Justice about the currently published NIJ Needs Assessment of Forensic Laboratories and Medical Examiner Coroner Office's report to Congress. Listen along as he discusses the findings of the report and the challenges faced by both forensic laboratories and medical examiner coroner offices. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Hello and welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. We are at the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors Meeting 2019 in beautiful St. Louis, Missouri. And our guest on the podcast is none other than NIJ's own Dr. Jonathan McGrath. He was in Dallas for his BS in chemistry. He uh, did an MS in forensic science at the University of Illinois at Chicago, earned his PhD in analytical chemistry from Georgia Tech in Atlanta and participated in the Sam Nunn Security Fellowship Program there, and then spent uh, eight years in Houston at the Customs and Border Protection Southwest Regional Science Center. What was most of what you did in forensic practice in at the Customs and Border? Yeah, so for the Customs Laboratory, and I, I spent, uh, it was actually about five years with Customs in the Houston Laboratory, and then about a little over three years uh, with the Customs Laboratory in, uh, in Washington, D.C. at the headquarters office. And the bread and butter analysis of uh, the customs work is really focused on trade work. And so after 9-11, after uh, the Department of Homeland Security was set up, the focus shifted to anti-terrorism. And so the laboratory system really focused on, on ways to support customs work in that area. And uh, primarily one of the, the main areas was uh, supporting the radiation detection work uh, at the port entries, the ports of entries and around the country. So seaports, airports, uh, land ports all have uh, detection equipment. And so the lab system will be responsible for providing reachback support. And so uh, in, in addition to all the other spectroscopies you learn as a chemist, it was pretty unique to be able to learn gamma spectroscopy analysis and, uh, and go to DOE training to provide uh, that support to the, uh, the customs officers that work with the port of entries and the, the uh, border patrol agents that work in the areas between the ports of entry. Uh, so it was, it was really fascinating. Of course, there's uh, some of the traditional forensic work that, that customs has going on in terms of controlled substance analysis. Uh, fingerprint work, but then also digital forensics became a hot area that, that was brought out at the customs laboratory. So it's a very unique experience to be able to to work on steels and mm-hmm. petroleum and wood analysis. And just depending on the operation or the uh, the mission of the day, it was a very unique experience. So. It's, uh, it sounds like a lot of fun, actually. It is a little bit of everything is always the yeah. most fun. And I think I have that same experience at NIJ, too, with all of the different forensic disciplines that fall under uh, our support through our programs and our research. It's, it's, uh, it's good to have the uh, experience, not only at Customs, but also working with other entities within DHS. So. John is a senior policy analyst with NIJ, the National Institute of Justice, and is in the Office of Investigative and Forensic Services 
uh, sciences, rather. Those of us who are familiar with all the grant programs know the importance of having top-notch people in D.C. at NIJ, and, and uh, John is a very, very key component of, of the Office of Forensic Sciences there with, within NIJ. And how long have you been at NIJ? So I came over um, to NIJ in 2015, so I've been there for just over four years, and I helped support the National Commission on Forensic Science when, when that was active. And then after the commission sunset, we helped support DOJ's uh, needs assessment of forensic laboratories. So I know that'll be the, the main topic of today's discussions. But I think one of the things that uh, I was able to do in, in my role as a policy analyst was be able to learn not only uh, the different facets and operations and programs of, at NIJ, but also to, to inject forensic science into other portfolios outside of the, the OIFs or the Office of Investigative Forensic Sciences to uh, promote some ideas in, in uh, uh, tuning some of our social science research to include aspects of forensic science. And uh, one of the other things I've tried to promote, too, is working internally with our other components within the Office of Justice programs, namely Bureau of Justice Assistance, Bureau of Justice Statistics, Office for Victims of Crime, to really educate them as to what goes on in the forensic sciences and, and identify areas of, of overlap with their programs. So um, we talk a little bit about that in the, the needs assessment as well as we consider the needs associated with the opioid and emerging drug threat crisis, uh, with sexual assault uh, cases and the analysis of the kits. And so I think there's there's various aspects that um, of the DOJ's other components that have an interest. And uh, we've had developed some really good partnerships in, in that respect. So, yeah, uh, one of the driving pieces of legislation for a number of years uh, for NIJ, especially in the DNA programs, is the, is the Justice for All Act. And right after you got there in, in uh, uh, the following year in 2016, the Justice for All Act was up for reauthorization. Congress passed right. some legislation, and, and in that they put what you've referred to, the, the needs assessment. So, And just for people who know, John has a reputation for being a very careful and thorough guy. I mean, he is. <laughs> <laughs> and the needs assessment, uh, when we release this, I think the needs assessment will be also released at the same time. So we'll make sure right. to link over to it from the podcast page for people to be able to review it. And, and when you do, you'll, you'll see reflected in that assessment the encyclopedic knowledge that John has, has built up. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's certainly a team effort. There's been, uh, yeah. when, when you look at the full scope of the dis disciplines and in the interconnectedness um, of the disciplines and the way that forensic operations are, are conducted across the U.S., I think this really captures um, the, the systems that are, are out there that are conducting this casework day in and day out. And when that's one of the themes of the report is looking at uh, systems-based solutions. So to really look at how labs operate internally, but also consider their stakeholders, their customers, their where the requests come from, what types of requests that they're getting, how that information and data is being used, and really try to identify not only solutions, but also identify uh, ways that both laboratories and any forensic operations can increase their efficiencies and their approaches, and maybe you know identify new ways to prioritize certain types of cases or their approaches to certain types of cases. I'm going to just say one thing I really liked about it when I was able to go through the text, and that is that it's, it's nicely set up in terms of the needs, challenges, and kind of the successes. Right, or the promising practices. Promising practices right. that the community has, has, has engaged in because one of the things that we don't want to be, we don't want to be going back with a report like this that's going to have a lot of visibility 
and just say, oh, well, you know, we got all these problems. And it's just like, well, why do you have those problems? And what are you doing about it yourself? You know, what are you kind of, kind of putting on the table? I really like the structure of the report because it talks about, you know, those challenges and those promising practices every time it raises a need. Yeah, and I think what we try to do is um, we've got about 30 or so call-out boxes uh, that identify either opportunities for forensic practitioners to consider in terms of either funding opportunities or projects that are going on across the country at the state and local levels that could be replicated in different ways uh, to apply those solutions to uh, to increase efficiencies and, and increase those capabilities. So we didn't want to just call out the needs by themselves. And uh, and I think we, we did a thorough job of uh, couching those needs with having call-outs to the, uh, the challenges associated with those needs and then following them up with those promising practices. So I think as you, as you uh, alluded to, we, we really tried to gain as much feedback from the state and local practitioner community as we could. And we're really focused on the state and local needs. We weren't focused on the federal needs in this needs assessment. But you mentioned the Justice for All Reauthorization Act. So the exact text comes from Section 13, is was our guiding uh, legislation uh, for this activity. And so we really were focused on the operational needs. So if the legislation called out looking at workloads, looking at backlogs, looking at needs associated with personnel, and uh, equipment needs, and not only for the forensic laboratories, but also for medical examiner and coroner's offices. Uh, so we have a separate section dedicated to that field of medical legal death investigation because we know there, there is some overlap uh, when it comes mm-hmm. to postmortem toxicology uh, efforts and uh, trying to assess you know, the, both death scene investigations, which could also be crime scene investigations, and really trying to hit those uh, systems issues where there is interconnectivity. In doing so, we hosted uh, nine listening sessions with the practitioner community. So we tried to, uh, to meet up at uh, the various conferences and annual meetings with various professional organizations. And so we, were, we started off with a listening session at, at, at II, so the International mm-hmm. Association for Identification. We also had a uh, in-person meeting uh, during the IECP annual meeting, so the International Association of Chiefs of Police. And at that meeting, we also had uh, representatives from the National Sheriff's Association, from ASHA, or the Association of State Criminal Investigative Agencies, and also major city chiefs were represented there. We actually had a two-day meeting with ASCLAD uh, representatives. So ASCLAD, of course, were here in St. Louis uh, at the American Society of Crime Lab Directors meeting, and they were uh, willing to provide information and, and feedback as to uh, our approaches and the, the topics and subject matter. And so we walked in the door with these listening sessions with a list of questions and really trying to assess where things stand currently and then trying to get additional resources and references. And as you see, it's it's a pretty robust uh, report with over 350 references. So we really try to do as, as much as we possibly could uh, to hit those areas. And just speaking of the medical legal death investigation community, we actually hosted a, a two-day meeting to discuss uh, the needs assessment and also NIJ's activities that related related to medical examiner corner issues. And we had representations from NAMES, the National Association of Medical Examiners, uh, also the International Association of Coroners and Medical Examiners, and ABMDI, which is the American Board of Medical Legal Death Investigators. In addition to that, we did some uh, special topic deep dives. So we took a look at digital and multimedia mm-hmm. evidence needs. So we, we had a listening session with the uh, SWIG-DE, so the Scientific Working Group on Digital Evidence. And we had two listening sessions at the American Academy of Forensic Science. So we had a um, listening session dedicated to hit one of the, the points that was included in legislation, which was to conduct an, an overview 
of the academic needs and resources available to the forensic community. So we do an overview of all of the forensic science academic programs around the country, and we had a listening session with representatives from various forensic science degree programs to include both bachelor's, master's, and there's a couple PhD-level programs in the forensic sciences. And so we sat down, we met with a lot of representatives from FEPAC. So FEPAC is one of the academy's uh, activities. It's the Forensic Science Education Programs Accreditation Commission. And there's a number of uh, both bachelor's and master-level programs that are accredited accredited by FEPAC. And we gained some very good information. And we really incorporated that into the our look at personnel issues and, and the, really the pipeline of making sure and understanding how students are coming through those academic programs and how prepared they are, and like what is their laboratory readiness level uh, to start conducting casework. We know that that students are going to that graduate are going to need training in the various disciplines before they're going to going to uh, conduct casework. But I think having a better understanding of what will bring them to that next level, uh, what will make them competitive, and then also you know, call attention to the aspects of the forensic uh, workforce that, that students need to be prepared for. They need to be prepared for the background investigations, uh, going through the interview process, really understanding what it takes to be successful in these fields. We actually had some discussions here earlier this week on that separately, and uh, you reflect a lot of that discussion here in the needs report. I mean, some of it is that, you know, the universities, to a large extent, uh, you know, it's it's almost impossible for them to make somebody, you know, laboratory ready. Right. It's, right. Uh, you know, and to some extent, maybe that's a disservice to the student because that makes it might, uh, you know, narrow their focus and professional opportunities down the road too much. Yeah, and I think some of the programs want to make sure that their students are prepared to seek employment in other uh, physical science careers and be able to be marketable outside of the forensic laboratory environment. Because we do know that you know, when a forensic science vacancy opens, there's potentially hundreds of applicants. It, it is a challenge for, for students to find jobs, but the, we do know that there's a... a there's a significant supply of students coming through these uh, degree programs. And so just identifying uh, the ways to get them prepared, I think, is essential. And we've talked about how mm -hmm. the FTCOE has free products that could be incorporated into mm -hmm. uh, the curricula or at least into the, the education of new students as they're coming through the system. Really prepare them for the new technologies that are being implemented uh, to understand the, the research that's uh, ongoing and to, to really get them to think outside the box as well as to, to where forensic science may go in the future. I think one of the, the critical elements that we've included in the needs assessment is a look at the Bureau of Justice Statistics uh, surveys mm -hmm. uh, on public labs. And so we look at the last uh, several years, you know, going back to uh, 1999, 2002 surveys on up. There's surveys in 2005, 2009, and then 2014. And BGS is about to conduct uh, its next survey next year of the public labs. And we, we've seen consistently every Three to four years, there's an extra 1,000 FTEs that are working at public crime labs around the country, and uh, we were able to rely on a lot of data. And this is this is actually probably the one of the most interesting aspects of the needs assessment is that the audience is probably somewhat familiar with uh, Project Foresight mm -hmm. uh, out of West Virginia University. The Project Foresight has been collecting data um, on forensic laboratory caseloads, their personnel, and their expenditures, and they're able to make some very interesting analyses in terms of understanding the, the cost per case, the number of items and samples and tests that are conducted per FTE. They're able to analyze the capital expenditures and personnel costs, and they track data on turnaround times and backlogs uh, on 18 
areas of investigation that match up with 18 different uh, forensic disciplines. And so we were able to rely on that data. And uh, Dr. Paul Speaker from West Virginia University, who's who's worked on this for the last decade, we were able to dig in and use that data to, to make some estimates. And uh, one of the things that we found is that based on the current workloads around the country, uh, public labs at the state and local level, they probably need about 900 more FTEs to, to conduct the, the work. So it'll be interesting when the BGS survey yeah. comes out next year to see what the, the trends have been since 2014 to see where we're at in terms of the ecosystem, if you will, of, of sure. where lab operations sit. Well, the uh, the forensic science community has two major advantages, and you've alluded to both of them. One of them is that the census data from BJS is longstanding and consistent. And so there really is a, a possibility to look at the trend lines right. and have an idea about what's going on. And the other is is that the I don't think people realize just how deep the data is and unique the data is that Paul has created in Foresight. Right. We have an, an understanding now in, in terms of what the expectation should be for staffing. And not only that, kind of, you know, he's got a lot of econometric analysis behind that. You know, there's no magic bullets here other than obviously there's some efficiencies that be, can be gained in certain places. But in the end, if you don't have the staff, you're simply not going to be able to keep up with the caseloads and the turnaround times that are yeah. expect, expected now. And I think that's exactly right. And and it's it, one of the interesting pieces of data, I think, that came out of the discussions with Paul. And uh, we'll, the plan is uh, to have a supplemental report that has a, a lot of the background details as to the the foresight analysis for the needs assessment the the main report uh, takes some of the main high-level uh, takeaway estimates on in terms of costs and and funding that may be needed to meet that optimal level of casework based on the case requests that are coming into the the public laboratories but one of the interesting features of the analysis is being able to understand where are labs spending their money what he's found is that a lot of labs are are delaying their capital expenditures to uh, either bring on new equipment, bring on new technologies in favor of increasing the expenditures on personnel. So they may be uh, increasing their case reporting and getting more cases out the door with more personnel, but they're sacrificing the long-term investments uh, into their their the various disciplines. A couple areas where the capital expenditures have actually been a little bit higher and I think we, we see that based on the effect of the, the opioid uh, crisis is that uh, more capital expenditures are going into toxicology and, and drug analysis. Just by the nature of digital and multimedia evidence mm -hmm. analysis, a lot of capital expenditures uh, go into that and ensuring that the those uh, forensic operations have the appropriate tools and the new technologies as technology is changing and the evidence is changing to do that data analysis. The foresight data, it just it provides a wealth of information, not only to identify the trends in the past, but also to do some predictive analysis for the future. I think that's one of the things that we call out in this report is that labs have experienced changes in, in trends, whether it's you know having those unsubmitted sexual assault kits flooding the laboratories for, for testing. And it's great that you know there's uh, recommendations from NIJ through the, the best practices for sexual assault kits to do test all. Uh, mm -hmm. testing for those kits. Uh, but laboratories need, need to be flexible because the opioid crisis might be affecting you know, Ohio, West Virginia now, but it could crop up into another uh, sure. location, and we never know what that next threat could be. So I think laboratories, the more data they have that they can help um, understand and make the business case for their needs. Uh, so when they go to their state and local legislatures, when they go to those budget-making decision makers, they've got the data to make that case to show exactly what they need. And some states have, have done their own uh, needs assessments, and that's been uh, incredibly remarkable to see 
how those local uh, jurisdictions have been able to to step up and and provide more funding for either more positions or targeted uh, disciplines and targeting certain backlogs. Sure. Yeah, I think one of the things that is a lesson here, I know that there's dedicated funding from NIJ for DNA, and that's certainly something that has been welcome in the field. It's changed uh, a lot about how forensic biology is done, and it was very focused. The issue that the needs assessment really lays out is that the needs vary so much by time and place. So, yes, right. you know, th- there's, a, there's a kind of overall trend line, but in some cases what you have is uh, controlled substance and tox samples going through the roof uh, in some jurisdictions. And other jurisdictions, they, they are still having problems with uh, trying to deal with sexual assault kits right. or biological evidence. We have you know, a lot of kids coming out of forensic science programs, but as you're saying, some of them aren't ready for casework. And at the same time, we might have a glut in certain areas of, of potential people, like we have hundreds of applicants, and other areas such as, such as forensic pathology, there's a huge shortage. That's absolutely right. And, yeah. and so I think it's important for folks um, at the state and local level to be able to look at these kinds of things, not just foresight, but some of the other resources that are out there to be able to lay out exactly where their needs are, whether it be using Coverdell funds or state and local funds to be able to understand where their needs fit into this overall picture. Yeah, exactly. I think you're exactly right. And I think we've heard from the stakeholder community, from the crime lab directors, that this report, even though it may not be granular to their you know, specific jurisdiction, they really appreciate the fact that we've gone to this level of detail to be able to show what, what the national issues are so then they can go to their their own uh, stakeholder communities, to their own uh, policymakers and say, you know, hey, this is the report that, you know, DOJ put out. Here's the analysis that they've, they've done. And let's consider what those specific needs are that, that we can address because, you know, even going back to when, when Coverdell was first initiated and we go back to the original Justice for All uh, Act of, I believe, 2004, there really is this push to have consistent practices around the country. Um, you know, some places do more property crimes than others, but to be able to, you know, ensure that different resources and capabilities are going to be available to to everybody across the country. I think it's uh, it's critical to, sh- to demonstrate that. And I think, you know, the medical examiner corner community kind of sits squarely within that general analysis um, just based on the way the systems are set up across the United States. And I think this, this report will kind of shed light on those unique needs mm-hmm. to the medical legal death investigation community. And as you pointed out, we, we do have a shortage of forensic pathologists. We estimate that we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 to 500 board certified forensic pathologists when the estimated need is uh, closer to 1,100 to 1,200. And the opioid crisis has not made things easier. And uh, when uh, names recommendations are to conduct forensic autopsies on suspected overdose deaths, we really need to have a national strategy, I think. And I think this is a good step forward to understand what that strategy could be. Yeah, I think that there's a, a parallel. It's not quite as extreme, but there's a parallel situation in some other disciplines. I think toxicology is definitely one of them where, uh, you know, you have some aging out of a lot of the more senior toxicologists, uh, whether it be in ME offices or elsewhere. And there's a real need to identify folks who are able to provide toxicology services. But then there's also in the pattern evidence disciplines, a very similar kind of parallel that's going on. And and I think you also point out in the needs assessment something about the, the certification. Now, accreditation has actually gone a long way 
That's right. Yeah, I think we're at about 88% of all public labs are accredited. Yeah, and certification is certainly more common in the accredited labs, again, as you pointed out in the needs assessment. Right. Uh, but there's still a large amount of, of gap between theory and practice there with respect to professional certification, not only in terms of how many are certified, but even there is a variability in certification programs as well. And I think that's something that we capture here, and we, we try to at least... And again, this you know being a, a more of a fact finding report, we didn't necessarily make an assessment or any recommendations um, from the DOJ side as to what the community should be doing. But we wanted to bring attention to kind of what these certification rates are, what the accreditation rates are, and let the community see that, digest it, and try to understand uh, and develop you know the, the right strategies moving forward. So, and as I think we've seen from the digital community, there's uh, there's a lot more use of certifications to support the professional development in that community. And I, I think uh, there's some lessons to be learned there, uh, just depending on the disciplines that are in play. Yeah, and everyone is kind of influenced by parallels. I mean, I think the digital evidence people are very influenced by the IT area more broadly, where certification is the thing, right? Right. There was a young person uh, who happens to be training for an associate's degree, and and but you know he's really focused more on the certifications than he is on the degree, and it, that's true for the digital evidence folks too. I mean, it's it's which tools you can work with, and you know which operations you yeah, can and, be trusted and, to do. And some of the digital education programs have incorporated uh, the certification of these different tools as part of their curriculum and mm-hmm. uh, part of their their process, which is great because it makes the, the student more marketable and makes them more aware of the uh, the tools that are available. It's going to be interesting to see what the model is moving forward. You talk of, about a fair variety of personnel issues, uh, and we, we don't have time to, to go into each one of them, but I do want to kind of highlight another one, which is the health and wellness area. Uh, this is right. an area where I, you know, I really congratulate you, John, because uh, NIJ has very much encouraged, FTCWE is now involved, but you've really encouraged us to play a role in, in this whole issue of the uh, resiliency and, and the stress issues involved in forensic science, and, and this is highlighted in the needs assessment. So as far as some of the work we've, we've started on the NIJ side, we've looked at the issues of stress and vicarious trauma uh, that may be occurring in the forensic community and really trying to identify ways to increase the resilience in those areas. And so we've incorporated um, these types of issues in our, our research portfolio as well. So we're in this year's uh, safety, health, and wellness solicitation, we've included research topic areas looking at, at stress and trauma, vicarious trauma. We're working really closely with our Office of Victims of Crime because they developed a vicarious trauma toolkit. And the main audiences were law enforcement, fire, EMS, and victim services. But we've been uh, having these internal discussions, too, to see like whether uh, the forensic personnel is sworn or civilian to understand what what uh, resources are available and have a better understanding of the organizational readiness of the, the tools and, and resources that are available to address those issues. So the name of the game is all about resiliency and, and giving personnel the, uh, the resources they need to, to address issues. So the other issue that uh, is highlighted in just broad stroke is workload, uh, which is obviously an issue that everyone in the crime laboratory is familiar with. Uh, you know, the backlog is an issue, but it's really more about, you know, how much casework is happening and what the turnaround time is and, and how are labs able to cope with the ever-increasing demand for forensic services. Right. Most labs that, that you know, take a look and participate in foresight have noticed, and I think Paul Speaker has done the deep dive on uh, the DNA casework, and it's shown that as uh, more cases are completed, the, the requests uh, for services just continue to increase, and I think that's been seen with other disciplines as well. And uh, one thing that Paul Speaker has been working with the FTCUE on, and we've, we called this out in the report, and, and really the needs assessment um, helped 
initiate this work is the development of a workforce calculator. And so I, right now, um, Max Hauk, who works with Paul Speaker, presented uh, this information at the Foresight meeting here at ASCLAD. And the idea is that based on the uh, crime statistics from the FBI's Uniform Crime Report, based on population statistics, based on the types of uh, workloads that are anticipated, the laboratories, laboratories can use this workforce calculator to try to identify, you know, what, what is their true FTE or full-time employee need in each of their sections? What, what, if you're going to try to achieve a certain turnaround time, what are the personnel needs associated with those timeframes? Um, I think this can be a very powerful tool. I know uh, some lab directors have, have done the beta testing, and I think Paul Speaker is getting more feedback, and hopefully that'll be a, a tool that that labs can use um, just in a real-time fashion. And as more and more foresight data contributes to that workforce calculator concept, Paul Speaker can refine the uh, development and help provide that business case as to what the specific personnel needs are. So one of the things that uh, you, you talked to, the whole idea of a systems approach to problems, right. uh, uh, this is a great venue to be talking about that. Uh, Asklad definitely highlights systems approaches to certainly workload issues. You know, We uh, have been talking today with various folks on, uh, as we've recorded podcasts, about Lean Six Sigma and right. uh, you know using automation and, and other kinds of strategies. Uh, you, you highlight several different folks who are taking systems approaches to responding to workload problems. Right. No, and that's part of uh, the topics that we cover in the call-out boxes uh, throughout the report. And I think uh, there was a representative that, that spoke today at ASCLAD um, from the, the D.C. Crime Lab, and uh, I made a note of this. She, she said, communication is critical, and I think that, <laughs> that resonates um, through the entire report, whether it's uh, training attorneys, whether it's just having the communication about what and how our service is provided, what types of information can be gained. I, I think with several disciplines, especially digital, trying to incorporate triaging processes is incredibly important. Um, one of the things that we point out in the call-out boxes is uh, the Houston Forensic Science Center recently started a new uh, latent print workflow. Uh, and what they've done is, based on the, the APHIS results, they've been able to generate investigative lead reports. And that's something where you can still maintain the scope of conducting your forensic operations under the, the quality system environment, but still be able to provide actionable information to your customer. I think they've had um, great successes with going through their backlogs. And if the investigator comes back and says, hey, we need a full workup on this, this is going to court, or we really need to, to ensure um, that this goes through the entire technical review process, they can do so. Uh, but They've been able to uh, really enhance, I think, their support for the law enforcement operations in the Houston area in that discipline. One of the systems issues that is very uh, much highlighted in the report has to do with evidence management, and, and it starts really with the detective and the investigation side where you know, you're know you determining what evidence needs to be sent to the crime laboratory. You have a whole issue with respect to how evidence is accepted and screened in the laboratory. There are several different ways in which labs have chosen to find ways to either prioritize or be able to, as you're saying, be able to give quicker feedback into the investigative process right. uh, in that prioritization framework. I'd say it's it's one of the top issues that labs are really trying to tackle right now from a systems perspective and making themselves more effective in informing you know, the, the overall criminal justice process. I think that's exactly right. Okay, yeah. I hit it right on the yeah. head. So that's it. We, yeah. we'll move on from there then. Uh, after workload, one of the other things that the report talks to is infrastructure and equipment. And, and that's a, something dear and dear to my heart. You know, I've spent a lot, lifetime on technology development. Right. The infrastructure and equipment goes after both the facility 
as well as the equipment that goes into it. And there is a lot of new equipment being used, whether it be robotics and, and DNA, uh, uh, some of the digital evidence tools are certainly out there. Uh, we're even seeing, of course, the advent of optical topography and firearms right. identification. Right. Uh, there's a lot of equipment and technology issues facing the community right now. Yeah, Th- that was one of the most, more challenging parts of the needs assessment uh, to look at because uh, it's, you know, look at Project Foresight data, it doesn't get down to that granular level of equipment data. There, there is information on expenditures related to, you know, the capital investments and supplies and consumables. Uh, but when one area we were able to to call out is, um, and we hear this from the practitioners. You know, they they may have the funding and they may be able to hire the personnel, but they just don't have the space, or they just don't have the ability to to build out the uh, laboratory capabilities, even if they can buy the equipment. Um, so one of the call out boxes is looking at the lean facility design concepts, and I know uh, NIJ's worked with NIST, and I think we've got some FTCOE products that look at the facilities issues and and really try to. Uh, uh, understand uh, not only like the Lean Six Sigma efficiency approaches, but be able to uh, to design out the the physical lab space to to help meet those efficiency efficient processes. Now, one of the things I want to clarify for folks uh, because uh, you know there've been a lot of uh, reports, the NAS report, uh, PCAS, and other ones. When looking at the forensic science community, you know they've focused on very particular kinds of of gaps in practice in particular disciplines. And uh, I think it's important for people to realize that this report is really designed to kind of look at operations and look at a bigger picture for forensic science. But there are particular strategies that are now being implemented over the last 10 years since the NAS report that have really attempted to address those. Right, right. The legislation asked us to consider the NAS report and some of the findings there as well. And one of the things that I I don't hear a lot about, but having worked for Customs and Border Protection, having worked in that that DHS environment, one of the last recommendations from the NAS report is is trying to identify ways to support and uh, incorporate forensic capabilities in issues of homeland security or national security. And so we actually included a special topic section looking at forensic applications and needs uh, associated with mass disaster and critical incident events. And so we we reached out to uh, Department of Homeland Security and, and FEMA. Uh, they have a Homeland Security Grant Program. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's interesting is that several of the pieces of equipment and resources that are needed uh, by the labs but are dual use for these types of events, they're already approved on the, the DHS side. Well, yeah, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the report, in addition to being a needs assessment, it really does provide some markers for anybody involved in forensic science improvement to really learn some some enormous detail about you know the different practices that are, that are going on here and and where the community is right now i mean i'm just looking through here i'm seeing prescription drug monitoring i'm seeing things where it's just like we're helping with loan forgiveness for students in medical examiner offices and there's just an enormous amount of, of yeah. information we, in and this we, report. we try to any any time we found something that that would be a uh, potential solution or idea to address um, address these needs, we tried to to bring attention to it. So I, I think in terms of this, the student loan forgiveness um, ideas that are are one of the ways to to uh, address the shortage of the board certified forensic pathologists. Maricopa County in Arizona has instituted their own um, uh, student loan repayment program, and I believe the way it works is that the personnel, the the pathologists, when they come on board, can receive up to one hundred thousand dollars to help 
pay their student loans and they get the money on a quarterly basis. Uh, they've got to put in the time before they can get that, that full amount. But I believe they've, they've hired um, over 15 pathologists to fill these vacancies. It's been quite successful. And we, we, we hope that type of model is something that the state and local uh, jurisdictions may consider to help help build up that workforce. And, um, you know, the other thing I think is really interesting, you have a part of the uh, special topics is also on the opioid crisis. And there are a lot of needs in that area right. uh, with respect to uh, funding and materials and, uh, you know, how uh, uh, the different parts of the system are able to work together. And, and it is geographically diverse. Uh, it is not the same crisis in each state. I think it's really valuable, I think, for folks to review that section in particular to try to understand where uh, uh, where we might be able to, to do some things that to address some of the more core challenges yeah. there. And one of DOJ's priorities is uh, identifying ways to address the opioid crisis. But what we the title of that section for the report is uh, looking at the opioid crisis and other emerging drug threats. And I think that's the way the community is and the forensic community is is looking at this because we don't know what that next big threat will be. In some areas uh, stimulants are are the issue uh, mm-hmm. still or have always been, even though opioids have been affecting other parts of the country. And so I, I really have to give a shout out to uh, to BJA, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, because we've been working really closely uh, with their their COPE program, so the Comprehensive Opioid Abuse Program. Back last year, so for FY uh, 2018, they were able to incorporate additional language in their their category of funding that supported data sharing and data integration amongst uh, the various public health and public safety uh, data sets. So they specifically called out medical examiners and coroners and forensic laboratory data. And they did the same thing again this year for FY19. And they've been great in, in including the forensic aspects and the fact that, you know, we, we do have these these enormous data sets. We've got DEA's NIFLIS, which is the National Forensic Laboratory Information System. Uh, we, we are collecting this data at regional and, and national levels, and I think that's incredibly informative to inform the, the toxicology testing, to inform the postmortem death investigations. In doing so, I'm glad you brought up the prescription drug monitoring programs. I've been going to their the meetings that BJA is hosting in this area, and we actually worked with BJA to, uh, to hold a roundtable with medical examiners and coroners and representatives from the prescription drug monitoring programs. And so there'll be a report coming out based on the best practices that were identified there because not all medical examiners and coroners have access to the PDMPs. And that information regarding the prescription drug history for a decedent is incredibly important uh, for making those death investigation decisions as to whether or not to autopsy and, and trying to understand if they have a suspected drug overdose on their hands. So I definitely uh, have appreciated the support from BJA and I know we've been getting that information out to the, the ASCLAD membership, to the forensic community to be aware of the the opportunities for cross-cutting collaborations between public health and public safety efforts. Yeah, another good example also of the relevance of Foresight. Uh, Foresight was able to come up with an estimate of, of opioid-related expenditures in forensic uh, laboratories, right. uh, $270 million a year, right. uh, which is an extraordinary number, and, and it actually based on real economic analysis and, and real data. And it tells you something very important yeah. about you know the needs there. Exactly, and I think that, that estimate that, uh, that Paul Speaker comes up with also includes the, the effects of diversion of resources from other forensic disciplines into the drug analysis and the toxicology analysis. And one thing he's um, shown from looking at the, the last decade of the foresight data is that 
on an annual basis, laboratory expenditures increase typically uh, just under 3% per year. But because of the opioid crisis, he's been able to uh, demonstrate that the expenditures associated with the drug chemistry analysis has, have increased over 35% uh, over the last couple of years. And for the toxicology analysis, that those expenditures have increased uh, over 25%. It's great to see the estimate that we can provide some quantitative data showing the impact uh, on the laboratories um, as they're as they're trying to attack these these caseloads and, and backlogs and these uh, specific disciplines. The last topic that that I'd like to highlight, and again, I'll point people to the report itself. We're really just trying to get people some perspective about it with the podcasts, and and hopefully whet your appetite enough so you'll actually go and download it and and read it through. And it talks about some of the tribal community uh, gaps, and those are very very difficult gaps first to define and also to address. And uh, there are some things that are being done to help the community, but but there still are, are a fair number of gaps from a forensic science perspective, uh, whether it be in, in sexual assault or uh, other areas of trying to make an effective uh, forensic science support for tribal communities. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. I, I think just trying to get a better understanding of um, how the forensic evidence is handled amongst the tribes for, for these Indian country cases FBI has, has MOUs with the states of Arizona and South Dakota to have those state labs uh, handle evidence from tribes in, in that area. But what we do in the report is address the issues and try to identify ways to, to collect more information. Uh, we're working closely with BJS. I believe they're gonna, they've already asked in some questions in this area for the Medical Examiner Coroner Survey. And we'll hopefully get some better information and provide the, the resources and training opportunities to, to get more information out there and to try to build up the forensic uh, response for these communities. So what is your expectation, going back to the enabling legislation and what Congress had asked for here, what is your expectation in terms of where the report goes from here and, and what kind of the response uh, that we're going to see at the, at the federal level to the needs report? It's too early to tell in some ways, but I think we've, we've had uh, you know, discussions within NIJ with our OJP partners. Uh, we recently stood up a, a federal interagency working group to address medical ex uh, medical examiner corner issues. So OJP is working closely with uh, HHS and CDC and about 20 other agencies around the federal government to uh, to take a look at these needs and try to identify ways that the different federal partners can can help address medical examiner corner issues specifically. But I think what this will allow is agencies to to determine you know where's low hanging fruit, where can they identify strategies and actions that can get the biggest bang for the buck uh, with the respective disciplines because like we, we've discussed already, every jurisdiction is a little bit different, the crime rates are different, and even the services may be different depending on uh, what's available amongst a specific jurisdiction or if the resources are available at a, at a regional level or with a, a task force uh, group, such as the case with, with digital in some cases around the country. One of the most important products from the discussions over the last couple of years uh, with the listening session participants, getting that practitioner feedback is that NIJ recently stood up a Forensic Laboratory Needs Technology Working Group, or the Flint Twig, and the FTCOE is uh, providing support for this group. And so this group of about uh, 15 laboratory directors and about five researchers and, and Paul speakers on this group as well, we're having them take a, a deep dive to provide objective, independent knowledge, data, 
information expertise to help inform uh, our decision-making processes and be able to take technologies from that have been products of our R&D portfolio and identify ways to implement those technologies into the laboratory environment to hopefully address some of these needs. And I think the Flint Twig group is, is off and running. We've given them some uh, some important tasks to, to identify some specific technologies. And the goal right now is to develop a four to five strategic uh, roadmap white papers to help implement some of these technologies that we've, we've discussed in terms of 3D optical topography and, and new uh, toxicology methods to, to really make an impact and, and share this information with labs across the country as they're bringing new technologies online. Well, it's certainly an interesting time to be a part of forensic science. I think that there have been times when uh, you know we've had uh, crisis or funding needs or really big new technologies. One of the things I think that's true now more than ever is just the sheer number of different things going on. I think that right. there's, uh, I think every last discipline has a, a, a huge changes happening within it, and so uh, being able to have this overall picture at least helps us with an overall roadmap for the forensic science community. Right. It's daunting to us at the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence because we see something new almost every day coming coming down the pike. Never a dull moment. It's a fascinating time to be involved in the forensic sciences right now. Well, John, I appreciate you coming on to the podcast, and I, I wish we had more time to actually visit with you and talk a little bit more about your background and some of your views, but I think we'll have you back. Yeah, well, there'll be a next time, I'm sure. Certainly appreciate the very important work you've done to pull this needs assessment together. It's a, it's it's a very, very important milestone for the forensic science community. Yeah. Well, thank you, John, for having me on. And thanks to RTI and the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence for the work you guys have done. And, and I think more people hopefully will, will see this needs report and take advantage of the products that the FTCOE has, has developed over the years to, to start to implement uh, some of the, uh, the promising practices that we've identified. And thank you for listening at home or in uh, the car or wherever it is that you're picking up Just Science. We appreciate you downloading the podcast. And please uh, share the uh, podcast as well as the other resources of the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence with your friends and colleagues. Tell them about all of the uh, free materials and substantive materials that can be used to meet some of the needs that uh, John has been outlining here today. I appreciate you listening in today. Take care. Next week, Just Science interviewed Cheryl Laporte about the NIJ's research and development efforts. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. <laughs>